0: Welcome to Literary Fiction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. We are back from a bit of a break after Christmas um, for a new year. And not really a new literary friction, but a newly invigorated literary friction. Yes, we are indeed. Yeah. Um, I I uh, ad libbed that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> Today our theme is nannies and the fascinating and sometimes fraught place that they occupy in our culture and in our books from the magic caretaking of Mary Poppins to the killer babysitters of slasher B-movies. And we have a really wonderful guest to kick off the year, don't we, Octavia?
1: We definitely do. Today, we're really excited to be interviewing French-Moroccan sensation author Leila Slimani about her second novel, Lullaby, which in French is called Chanson Douce. Leila is the first Moroccan woman to win France's most prestigious literary prize, the Prix Goncourt, and only the 12th woman to do so ever. She is a journalist and a frequent commentator on women's and human Rights. Lullaby is a novel about a middle class couple in Paris and the nanny they hired to care for their young children, who at first seems like the perfect caretaker. It's become a complete sensation in France and has already sold in thirty-six countries to date. Um, and Macron was so into
0: it that he asked her to be his Secretary of Culture or Arts, which she declined. Yes. Um and she he's asked her to do something else, which she accepted, but I can't remember exactly what that is. No, so either. Way, in the interview. He's a big old fan. Yeah. <laughs> Number one fan. Number one. Um, So on the show today, we'll be interviewing Layla, discussing nannying and its tropes more broadly in literature, and then give the usual book recommendations. So let us take care of you for the next hour on Literary Friction. That was cute, Carrie. I see what you did there. Yeah. Not as embarrassing as usual. No, no. I liked it. Here we go. Here we go. Layla, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you. I wanted to begin by asking you about the first sentence of Lullaby. Um, which is translated into English as "the baby is dead." Did you always want to begin with such a stark image, and also with the death of the child?
2: Yes, um, for me it was obvious that I had to begin with this uh, sentence, and um, actually it was very easy for me to write the beginning of the book. It was um, I wrote it in a very in a very uh, I don't know how to say it. Um, it was really an evidence for me. It was really obvious that I had to hook the attention of the reader. I wanted the reader to be with me and to be a sort of investigator in in the book to try to look at every details of the life of Paul and Miriam, the parents, and every details of the life of Louise and try to understand how such a terrific thing can happen to a normal family. So for me, yes, it was difficult, but it was, a, uh, div- it was difficult because I knew that for the reader it's a, a shock to read as a first sentence, the baby is dead, but... Um, Anyway, I think it's it's done. The baby is dead, so now we can begin the the story.
0: Yeah, it becomes a why done it rather yes. than a who done it.
2: Exactly. Starting in such a stark way really sets up
1: the sense of narrative tension that propels the reader through the book. Um, and we both read it in almost one sitting because it's so compelling. And like you say, you know, you want to find out why. You start with this horrible image, and it's a very kind of emotional hook. Um, but I wonder, did you write the book in a similar state of intensity and if you did did you enjoy it was it an enjoyable process for you or was it this like tense experience
2: it was both it was very tense but at the same time it was very enjoyable because I really wanted to write a novel of um, atmosphere. I really wanted to build a sort of a uh, atmosphere of uh, claustration, of anxiety. I wanted the reader to feel uncomfortable. I wanted him to be very anxious. Uh, wh- how is it possible? Who is this woman? I wanted him to be afraid of what was going to happen. And I think what was interesting for me was the different point of view of the parents and of the reader. The reader knows more than the parents, so he can't ignore every detail about Louise's life. He's g- going to look at every weird uh, attitude of Louise, knowing that she's going to kill the children. So for me, it was very interesting to build this atmosphere and to build a sort of progression because I didn't want to uh, describe Louise in a sort of caricatural way uh, as a cliché of the crazy nanny, or uh, you know. Uh, um, being totally mad. No, I wanted the 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 mad part of uh, Louise to be very mysterious and very subtle. So it was uh, very interesting for me to try to to write in this sort of progression.
0: This book really got under my skin. Um, I read it very quickly, but I also think it's because it's not just a thriller about why somebody murdered someone. It's it's a really I think nuanced portrait of. Um, a nanny and what that kind of position means and the implications it has for things like race and gender and class. So um, why were you so interested in the idea of the nanny and and what did you come to decide about this position and what it means in our society?
2: You know, I think that a, a nanny is a very fascinating character for a novelist because she lives in a home, but it's not her home. She raises children, but the children are not her children. She owns nothing. But at the same time, she has a sort of place in the house. Everyone is telling her, you belong to the family, you are one of ours, but she's not. Everything is a sort of theater, and everyone is doing as if she was a member of the family, but it is not true. So I loved the idea of of this ambiguous relationship she has with the family. Because this is a relationship, obviously, of power because Miriam and Paul, the parents, they are the boss and she's the employee. But at the same time, she has a power because she has the power on the children because she's the one taking care of them and she's the one responsible of their security. So I loved this idea of power and also, I, uh, y- as you said, there are questions and topics of race, of gender. It's the relationship between two women, uh, two women, uh, two working women, and they, d- the two of, um, of them, have their own uh, desire, their own uh, thing to fulfill. So it was very interesting also to explore how two women have this kind of very ambiguous relationship, because Miriam, she wants her children to love Louise. But not too much, because she wants to be the mother, and she wants to be the one who is the the more loved, the most loved. So it was really fascinating to explore the this particular relationship. And you you said in other interviews that you
1: were inspired by a number of real life stories about nannies that killed their charges, um, and saying that Louise was named for Louise Woodward, who was charged with manslaughter for killing a baby which you were saying Carrie you remember from
0: well I grew up in Massachusetts which was where it happened she was a English nanny Um, but it was people were so fascinated by this case of this young 19 year old girl who had shak- well supposedly shaken a baby and killed it.
1: Mm. I mean, it, it, they are stories that capture some of our deepest fears,
2: aren't they? About Of course, and I think all the stories of nanny harming or killing children are very fascinating and people share a lot about, speak a lot about this and did you hear about this story? Because it's our worst fear, it's our nightmare as uh, women, as mothers, even as fathers of course and I really wanted to explore my own fears and my own nightmares I, as a mother I wanted to confront them very deeply um, I didn't want to to avoid this I want to 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 look at this in 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 the eyes in, in a certain way
0: do you think that being a mother and having your own children changed the way you thought about child care and the sort of problems inherent in hiring somebody else to do some of that work for you
2: Of course, of course. You know, when I began writing the book, I was just hiring a nanny. And uh, I can remember the first time I did the interviews with the nanny, it was... Very weird, because I was in front of a lot of women coming from very far away, coming from Africa, coming from Philippines, women who had a very, very hard life, uh, very often women who had their own children, but children who were abroad, and women telling me, you know, I haven't seen my child for 10 years, and she was going to take care of my child and spend the whole day with a little child who has everything. Uh, and she doesn't even know what uh, uh, her own child looks like. It was very, very hard for me to listen to all this story. So I wanted in a certain way to pay tribute to all those women who makes it possible for us to have the life that we have today and who makes it possible for me to go out at night and have a drink and have a career and travel. And I think it's very important to say that for a woman working, there is always another woman working and another woman working because at the end of the day, you need your house to be clean and you need your children to be fed and to be in their pajamas. But we need someone to help us if we want to have it.
1: Imagine a world where it's not just a woman doing that work, you know, yeah. where you <laughs> could have a man doing those <laughs> yeah. things. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, this raises a lot of questions about exploitation, really, doesn't it? And um, it's a powerful theme in the book. And I was thinking about how what really struck me in the narrative is the way that Louise starts to take on jobs that extend beyond the duties of a nanny. Um, willingly, you know, she wants to clean the house, she wants to cook the meals, and it becomes part of how she insinuates herself deeper Mm -hmm. into the family. Whereas, you know, often those are things that nannies are um, dumped upon to do, that, again, you know, when you're looking at this, career that doesn't have clear boundaries because you're in a family. Um, But I I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that and that decision to have Louise as a character that extends beyond just childcare.
2: Yeah that's very important in the psychology of Louise because Louise is someone who wants to belong. She wants to belong to this family so she thinks that the more she will be needed the the more she will be desired by the family and the more she will stay with them because they will need uh, her so much that they can't tell her that she has to go and that now we don't need you anymore because the, the kids are uh, have grown so you can go away. And she's very afraid of uh, being alone. And she's very afraid that no one is going to need her anymore. And I think that's another part of the job of a, a nanny. You know, a nanny needs to be needed by by someone and she needs to say you know, I'm very useful. You need to keep me with, with you and I think that Louise she had a lot of uh, breakups in her lives. Uh, breakups with her own child, with her husband who died, but also with the t- all the children that she has raised because she raised a child and then the family say, okay, now the child uh, uh, is raised, he's at school, we don't need you anymore. And she redo it and redo it and redo it again. So I think she's in, in a certain way, she's exhausted by all those breakups. And now when she, m- when she meets Paul and Miriam, she says, I want to belong to this family and we won't break up. And one of the things
0: I like about this book is Louise is a very complicated character and she's not just an evil nanny who does a horrible thing. She's someone who's been exploited all of her life. She's someone who's very lonely. She's someone who's living in desperate poverty. Um, And was it very important for you to show that her motivations were there, that it wasn't just a, a moment of craziness, this thing that she does to the children?
2: Of course, and here again, I didn't wanted to to be in a sort of caricature or in the in a cliché. It's very easy if you want to describe a sort of monster to say, okay, she's a monster, and she's a the uh, she's a, she has a sort of evil in, uh, uh, evilness, and that's all, and she's just a bad woman. But she's not. She's making something that is monstrous, but she's not uh, a monster at the beginning of the of the story. She's just someone who is very lonely, someone who who is very afraid of the of the future because she doesn't know what she's going to to become and in um, in a part of the book i'm uh, i'm saying that she doesn't have her own room she never owned a room, Uh, it's a sort of reference uh, to Virginia Woolf, you know, because I think for a woman, for a a human being, but maybe more for a woman, it's very important to have just a place, a place of yours, a place where you can be alone, have a a sort of intimacy, uh, where you can have secrets too. And um, yes, of course, Louise is, um, is, I hope, a character to whom you can feel a sort of empathy. And I had a lot of readers who told me I was very, very, I felt very uncomfortable because I had empathy for her, even if I knew she was going to commit such a murder. But I think it's the, the aim of literature is that to make us look at monsters and to make us look at people who maybe made very, very bad thing, but to understand that they are human beings, even if they are monsters at the same time.
1: I think one of the great strengths of the way you tell the story is also that the masse, the family, the parents don't come off scot-free either. So, you know, you build this uh, empathetic relationship with Louise. And also there's a social commentary that's critical of the couple, Um, even though obviously they aren't the ones, they don't commit any monstrous crimes. But I think the way you explore the nuances in the, the tiny ways in which they exploit Louise throughout the, the narrative is really, really subtle and really interesting. Um, but I wonder, you know, if you could talk a bit about the racial dynamic that you bring in in that. Um, there's a moment in the book where the couple d- decide they don't want to hire a nanny from North Africa because Miriam feels that she might feel a sense of complicity with her. And I wonder if you could, could speak about that a little bit.
2: You know, when they decide to hire a nanny, they have a sort of they have a lot of criteria. They think... we know exactly what we want and if we do exactly if we find uh, the the nanny who can be exactly what we want everything is going to be okay we we can build the boundaries between the nanny and ourselves, and it's going to be okay they don't listen to their guts they don't use their intuition they use only a sort of rationality a social rationality which is very weird i think and so um miriam is from north africa and louise is white Uh, for me it was very important this um uh, the fact that Louise is not an immigrant, because she's doing an immigrant job, but she's not an immigrant. So it was a way for me to emphasize in a certain way her social humiliation, because she's doing a job that is not very... Uh, that is not valuable in, in a social... Uh, that is not valued... Uh, socially, and um, also when she goes to the playgrounds uh, with the the other nannies and the other children, she doesn't belong to any group of nannies because you have the African group of nannies, the um, A- Asian group, and she's always lonely. And the other nannies are looking at her. She's the white nanny, the only white nanny. So it was also a way to emphasize this. And for Miriam, um, when she wants to hire a nanny, she goes to an agency. And when she goes into the agency, the, the boss of the agency thinks that she's going, she wants her uh, to, to be a nanny because she's North African. So I, want, I wanted also to be a little bit ironic and to say that uh, nowadays in our societies, a lot of immigrants uh, are successful and that they can now hire nannies and that uh, here again, we have to avoid cliché and caricature and that sometimes immigrants are successful, our lawyers, our journalists, they hire nannies and sometimes nannies are white. And
0: I, I, another way I think you complicate things and don't show caricatures is um, both Miriam and Paul, but maybe more so Miriam's relationship with parenting and um, that it's not always a total joy for them. Um, Miriam goes back to work partially because she becomes kind of bored just sitting at home with her children. And even though... Um, she needs to hire a nanny, which basically will negate the salary that she's making in work. That's a very important choice for her. Um, and they both seem to vacillate between sort of loving their children with this total intensity and being sort of annoyed by their children. And <laughs> that just uh, I don't have children myself, but I thought that was that portrait of parenting was so refreshing.
2: But, you know, life at home and life with the children can be very boring and very annoying and very repetitive. It's every day the same thing, and you have to <laughs> feed your children, and the bath, the pajamas, and please undo this. Yes, I will do it. Please undo <laughs> this. Yes, I will do it. And sometimes you just want to go out, and you just want to forget your mother or a father. And um, I know it's a little bit taboo to say this, but I think it's uh, very important for women to dare saying this because it's a way to free ourselves also from this idea that uh, motherhood is so wonderful and full of love and that, uh, full of joy. It's not true. Very uh, very often I don't want to play with my with my son. When I go back home and I'm very tired and I have a lot of, of uh, uh, problems and my son is here, I want to play Lego, I don't want to play lego you know i'm bored playing lego but i think we should we should dare to to say this and it was also a way to emphasize the fact that the job of a nanny is very difficult because a nanny is spending uh, the day at home and she's doing all those repetitive actions every day and every day and every day and that's another reason why i think louise is so exhausted because she has done this all her life and it's very very difficult and here again it's not valued socially no one is telling you thank you for having made the puree and having changed the diaper of the the baby is just normal for a mother or for, for a nanny everyone considers it's just normal
1: yeah, and it, I mean, one of the functions of play is often to build intimacy as well. So if you're the parent, the payoff with playing with your child is that you build this intimate relationship that's going to stand you instead for the rest of your life. Whereas obviously as a nanny, what's the payoff? You, you build this intimacy with this child, and as you said before, then you leave. You know, The the, the post becomes vacant and you have to move on. Um, and I, I think the way that you explore loneliness is really meaningful and... You know, It strikes me that that's one of the reasons the book has had such great success because it, it is universal. It's an understanding of that feeling that You know, this idea that parenthood could complete you or that your career could complete you is shown to be nonsense because loneliness is kind of a fundamental of human existence.
2: And, you know, feeling lonely with your children is something that is very hard. And I I felt this sometimes, you know, when you come back home and you have a a problem or you have a sort of you feel anxiety and you have your, your child playing you can't speak with him, you can't tell him, you know, I have a problem, please help me. Do you want to speak with me about my job problem? Of course, you ca- you can't and you shouldn't because he's just a child and he, he shouldn't uh, care about your problems. But you feel very lonely and sometimes you just want to cry and you just want to go in your bedroom and say, oh, please leave me, I, I feel very bad, but you can't. And I wanted to explore this, the, the fact of sometimes being so lonely with your children.
1: I can't imagine, I mean, I can imagine that alienation. I don't have children either, but... Yes, I can really imagine it. And I'm watching some of my friends go, go through that with their tiny babies at the moment.
2: Because you have to protect them, but at the same time, you can't stop being an individual. You can't stop being who you are. But everyone, and especially the patriarchal system, makes you feel uh, th- think that a mother can forget who she is. You're just a mother. And uh, as long as you're a mother, you're not an individual anymore. You have to forget everything about your desire, your problems. But that's not true. That's just bullshit. Mm-hmm.
0: Um this book is set in Paris and it's obviously where you live but it seems to me a, that Paris is an important character yes. in in the novel um and one of the things that I thought was so interesting was this uh divide between the external image that people are presenting versus the what what they're feeling or thinking or actually doing in their own homes or in their own lives so of course there's Louise who um, her favorite dress is this Peter Pan collar light blue dress with buttons the sort of perfect nanny and then there are the masses they live in a trendy neighborhood um, it's the smallest flat but they found the flat um, and they're presenting this life as a sort of cultured couple but of course they're struggling at home and um, trying to parent their children and, and I wonder if you, you see that as something that is particular to Paris or it's something that you notice about the city itself
2: no, I think um, you know. I think that the book could take place in uh, Brooklyn or um, in London in a hipster neighborhood. I really wanted also to explore in a certain way the hipster culture. Mm. This idea of this couple with they are nice people you know they are not racist they are open minded they love um, uh, environment i suppose they eat quinoa and they are you know <laughs> very nice to children and they they want to go to the museum and so i wanted to explore this idea of people who theoretically are very nice but the day they meet someone who, who is poor who is different who is coming from the suburb everything is going to be different in practice when they really actually live with this uh, this person. And I think that's maybe the problem sometimes with hipster. We have, and I consider myself as a, uh, like Miriam and Paul as a, a hipster, Um, I think that we have in theory, we have a lot of very good ideas, but are we really capable of living those ideas and uh, of uh, applying, I don't know how to say, applying Applying those ideas in real life? I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. And the reality being that you don't know until you try, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And especially that very, very particular dynamic with the nanny. How could any of us know? Like for me as a childless person, it's impossible to imagine. And, you
2: know, they don't really assume the f- being the bosses. They don't want to be the bosses. It's too difficult for them. So they, they're like trying their best to understand how can we be bosses? Should be, we be friendly to her? Should we be very cold and just tell her you have to do this and you have to do that? So it was also interesting to explore the fact that they are very afraid of uh, hierarchy and very afraid of being the bosses.
1: Yes, and I wanted to make the point that she almost becomes their parent also. So it's that strange thing, which again I I found was very tied up in this notion of hipster culture because there's something infantilizing about the trope of the hipster, isn't there? Completely, completely. Like a teenager.
2: I was uh, uh, listening to all my friends uh, when I was writing the the book and uh, a lot of friends of mine was telling me, you know my nanny, my nanny, and I was like, it's very weird. (laughs) My (laughs) nanny, she's not yours, you don't own her, and you're not a child. She's not your nanny. But then I thought, maybe in a certain way, she's also the nanny of the parents because the parents are still like sort of teenagers. You know, they don't know really how to manage their life. So she's also the nanny of the parents.
0: Hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your style because um, in many ways it's very simple just in terms of the language. Um, And I read, uh, there was a big piece in The New Yorker, about you recently and and she talked about how an editor from Gallimard had kind of encouraged you and told you um, to ignore your character's feelings and and just focus on their actions and that totally changed the way you write so um could you talk a little bit about that and the sort of stylistic decisions you made while you were writing this book?
2: Yeah, um, concerning the sentence of my of my editor, you know, I think I'm I'm a sort of existentialist in in my writing because I think that you can decide who someone is when you see what he does. The actions are the m- for me m- more important than psychology. You don't need to say he's thinking this or he feels this. If you just look at what he's doing, you will immediately know what he thinks and what he feels and i think that the reader is very smart is clever i trust the reader to and i know that he can really understand what i mean i don't i don't need to explain everything i like the idea that uh, writing is also not saying uh, some things and um, I think that I'm always writing about very ambiguous feeling, ambiguous situation. I, I like the idea of uh, putting sort of trouble in the in, in the book. So my writing needs to be very clear. because if I want to to speak about ambiguity, my style should not be ambiguous. I have to be very clear so the reader knows exactly what I mean and then he can feel this ambiguity. He can feel this uncomfort. So I think it was very important for this book not to be too lyric or too poetic. It was very, very important to be very clear so the reader can't avoid what I mean. Mm. Um, And do you think that that style is
0: particular to this book or is it something... Is it the way that you think language should work and literature should work more generally? No, not
2: literature. Well, yes, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Or maybe your literature. N- yes, yeah. all literature should uh, <laughs> <laughs> like my book. No, 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 no. Just, it's, it's just for me. It suits me. It's, yeah. uh, it's. I think it's my style. But, you know, it takes a lot of time to find your own voice. And I think that now I found my voice. In my first novel, it's exactly the same style. But... Here again, my first novel is also about very ambiguous feeling and ambiguous character. So I think if I want to still explore this darkness, I really need to have this clear style.
0: Yeah, and and one final question that I wanted to ask, which is, um, obviously, the book was written in French, we, uh, we're, we're reading it in English, and um, it had to be translated. So I'd love to know a little bit more about your relationship with the translation as as an English speaker yourself, if how involved you were, um, how much you've engaged with it. What do you think?
2: You know, I'm very, very happy with the translation because I think he was very... Um, he understood exactly what I wanted to do as a writer. I think he understood the character very, very well too. And of course, he, um, he's, I spoke with him and he emailed me and we, we talked a lot about some difficulties he had to, to translate. But I think that the translation is, uh, is very good and very close to um, what I did in French. That's great to hear. That <laughs> is really great. To hear. <laughs> it can be such a complicated <laughs> thing. So yeah. that, yeah. At the same time, you know, I can't judge for the other uh, translation for Chinese or Korean because uh, obviously yeah, I don't speak Korean or Chinese. But um, I uh, I trust the translator, and I think that they they know what they d- what they are doing.
0: So you're not, um, you know, picking apart every sentence.
2: No, (laughs) and I'm not a pain in the ass for the (laughs) translation. Okay, Leila,
0: it's been a total delight to have you you on. Thank you so Um, much. I would recommend that everyone read Lullaby, which has just been published by Faber & Faber. Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt back with Octavia Bright, and we are talking about our theme for today, which is nannies. um, Which turns out is, I think, a very fruitful literary trope. The more I looked into it, the more I thought about how interesting nannies are as a literary exploration. It's something that Layla talked about in the interview as well, obviously um so let's start by talking about the sort of range that nannies can occupy in literature and to me it seems like it they, they range from this sort of perfect life-changing characters like Mary Poppins um who you know we know from the movie but was also based on a book by P.L. Travers or Maria from The Sound of Music these people who come into the lives of children who have sort of duller apps in Paris and are completely transformative um but there is also this other darker side, like in Layla's books, or, you know, there are tons of slasher B movies about killer babysitters and killer nannies and things like that. So let's start by talking about that first trope. Um, it's usually one from children's books, isn't it?
1: For sure. Yeah. The perfect nanny. The perfect neutered, desexualized, de nanny.
0: Yeah. And when we were preparing for this segment, we were talking, um, of course, about the most desexualized, neutered Nanny, which is the dog from Peter Pan.
1: Yeah, Nana. The dog. The fucking dog. They made her a dog. Yeah, which seems very irresponsible, actually. Uh, come on. It's fantasy. But it, 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 it's, it's a complicated thing because that dichotomy you talk about is all to do with the good mummy, bad mummy Stuff that goes runs through society and culture, regardless of where you're looking at. You know, the complicated thing, the complicated coexistence of the maternal woman and the sexual woman, and the fact that it's easier to separate these two things for a patriarchal society to kind of get their head around it. The idea of a a sexual woman being a caretaker of children, or um, a maternal woman being the caretaker of a couple's sexual life, is too frightening. So it's like let's split them open, (laughs) cut them, cut them, cut them in half. Then we can keep the, the the mother as wife, and then we can have the dog to step in and be essentially a slave without us having to think about the question of slavery because it's an animal um you know it's it's and Nana is definitely not the perfect nanny. the children get taken away by a flying little boy yes. <laughs> that's a very good point she
0: fails um, yeah well, it's interesting that you bring up slavery as well because I think it's impossible to ignore the the racial past of nannies especially in the United States and I don't know as much about it in the rest of the world but um, I'm thinking of Gone with the Wind for instance which has this character Mammy um, who is a black woman who raised Scarlet um, doesn't seem to have any other character traits besides her love of Scarlet and her sort of fierce personality Um, and of course the Mammy trope is actually a really horrible racial stereotype that has persisted and persists today in things like Aunt Jemima syrup, which is still a product on the market, which is crazy. Crazy. Um, And, and also you could, I mean, many people did argue that the help by Catherine Stockett, which was a hugely successful book published recently, again, just falls into the same uh, stereotypes and patterns by having a sort of magical life changing black nanny who makes a white girl believe that she can self-actualize in the way that her parents haven't um, exactly
1: she subjugates herself completely to the needs of the child which actually places the nanny status below that of children in the hierarchy of the family and she subjugates her own agency for the for the work you know for the life of these children which is again this very complex idea that what what it ends up reinforcing in the culture is the idea that childcare involves subjugation of self, first and foremost, which it absolutely doesn't have to, and that it's not something that can coexist with ambition, it, that it has to be one or the other, and that it can't be seen as like a noble, worthwhile profession that is professionalized, that involves wages and holidays, and you know that is taken to be a, um, a career in any other way. So I was thinking also, it's interesting, obviously you coming from an American background and me coming from a British background, Um, that there is a difference in the way that nannies are represented in these two national literatures and that the racial element that you were just talking about in American literature is much more prevalent than it is in British literature. And the nannies that I was thinking of was Jane Eyre, obviously, more of a governess, but she's a kind of a white woman who's also an outsider and is um, different from the people that she's taking care of, uh, but she's not... um, Subjugated in quite the same way, and then I was thinking about that book Love Nina mm, by mm. Nina Stibb, which was a real sensation, and they made it into a very schmaltzy, sentimental BBC drama, um, which is also about uh, a young woman, a young white woman. She's from Leicester City, who moves to London in the eighties to look after the sons of this grand literary editor um, in a big, ca- crumbling Camden home. And it's kind of a romantic idea of, of literary London in the eighties, and she meets all these ridiculous writers, and you know, um, but it's very, very a uh, favorable view of that world. She's critical, but it's not social commentary. It's kind of um, a romantic idea. And the implications of sort of social class, which was something that we spoke about when we had Kit Duvall on the show a little while ago, um, with respect to Jane Eyre, where Kit Duvall points out that actually Jane Eyre is not a, a working class perspective because Jane Eyre herself speaks French and is educated beyond what one would expect in that kind of context um similarly in in love nina it's not actually a commentary on like two worlds colliding it's it's more uh it's much more sentimental than that um
0: yeah and uh i loved that book actually i remember uh, you loving it she's she's just very funny yeah it's very very funny um, and she's working for mary Kay wilmers and it is You do get to peer into literary life. I agree it's not the most critical uh, portrait of class, but I don't think it necessarily needs to be. But I think you you do bring up a point that um, maybe nanny literature, especially in earlier times and in children's book, is, first of all, not very critical of the position of the nanny. Um, and second of all, is often told from the perspective of the children or the adults who are changed by the nanny, rather from the nanny themselves. And when the nanny starts to have agency, that's when it gets a little more complicated. Um, and and perhaps we can talk about these complicating narratives now, um, starting with Layla's book, of course, which uh, which I think does a really good job making the reader think about complex relationship between a nanny and the people who hire him or her and if that relationship is ever not complicated and I I think I came out of that book thinking it's no
1: yeah I think also one of the things that is emphasized by it and by a lot of the writing about nannies, some of the nonfiction books, like there's one called Nanny Knows Best, The History of the British Nanny by Catherine Holden, and one called The Perfect Stranger, The Truth About Mothers and Nannies by Lucy Kalin. Both of those books really emphasise, by the sounds of things, I have to say I haven't read them, um, but reading about them, they really emphasise that the relationship that is really um, under strain is that between mother and nanny father doesn't tend to come into it in the same way which i think is very interesting and hopefully is something that will change with maybe our generation maybe maybe it's too late for us maybe younger but this idea that it's very much women's work that the nanny takes over and that it's very much the question of when the mother goes back to work does she go back to work etc etc when actually you know i live in hope of a much more equal society where it could be she could be replacing the father as simply the co-parent and you know obviously I'm speaking as a childless woman so I understand of course that there are certain needs that like breastfeeding etc can only be provided by the female body in that partnership etc etc however um I do think it's interesting that you can't really separate at the moment this discussion from discussions wider discussions of gender and gender roles within the home as well and what constitutes women's work and what constitutes men's work and also the capitalist um, element in this which is that you know often and it's kind of talked about in in Layla's book um, when the woman goes back to work her salary is only really going to just cover the childcare. it's not going to really enable her to contribute to the life of the family so there's this idea that it's kind of a luxury for her to be able to do it or you know what is it actually facilitating handing over this child care when it's seen through the sphere only of the feminine it's facilitating the woman's vanity, the woman's need to have another identity apart from mother. What's wrong with just being a mother? You know, it sparks up a whole list of very contentious questions to which there is no concrete answer. I think there's only personal experience and the different desires of different people, which I think Layla's book ex- sort of explores really, really well. Um, mm, I agree. But I also think that there's, you know, when, when researching this, I had thought similarly to you that there were, you know, the, the trope of the nanny or the governess kept coming up in a more um, zoomed-out way from the perspective, like you say, of the families or of the children or the employers. Um, and then I discovered this list of alternative nanny, na- nanny narratives that are more contemporary, um, which are from the perspective of the various nannies in question. And I haven't read any of them, um, but we decided that they're worth mentioning because it kind of flips this thing on its head a little bit. Um, So there's one called Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid, which is a novella about a young au pair from the Caribbean working for a wealthy family in New York City. And it's told completely from her perspective. One called Minding Ben by Victoria Brown, which is based on her journey from Trinidad to New York. Um, There's one called Bad Marie, by Mary Demansky, which is about an emotionally scrambled ex-convict who cares for the daughter of a childhood friend. And by the sounds of things in that narrative, the split is far less defined. And it's much more about women uh, stepping in to help one another realize themselves in one way. So I do think that there's more of a breadth of experience being explored in this kind of, under the umbrella of this trope than
0: perhaps there used to be. Yeah, which is a very hopeful thing. And I definitely want to read some of those books, having... um, been exposed to nanny literature of the future (laughs) and the present moment.
1: I have to give a very brief shout out to a song called Bad Babysitter by Princess Superstar because it was all I could think about when we decided that this was the theme of the show. (laughs) (laughs) And for any listeners that remember it, the lyrics are, I'm a bad babysitter, got my boyfriend in the shower, I'm charging 10 bucks an hour. And it was great.
0: Yeah. And actually on that theme of babysitting, I think it's something that we should have we should talk about a little more, which is. Babysitting is a very temporary arrangement in contrast to the nanny who is usually living with the family or spending a lot of time there. But it's still a, a very interesting and fraught uh, position and one that I think is very reflective of our contemporary times, um, especially in America when teen girls took over childcare and, it, and all of the crazy. implications for that. Um, yeah, I consumed the babysitters club when I was a kid. Uh, and I um, I was reading a, an, an interview with a woman who wrote a book, which I actually haven't read. Um, I'm now trying to find her name. Um, Miriam Foreman Brunel, who wrote a book called Babysitter in American History. And she makes the argument that, again, like nannies, babysitters were given this sort of polished, clean image by books like The Babysitter's Club, which depicted... Super responsible super sitters. Um, But there is, again, this undercurrent of distrust of teenage girls and their budding sexuality. Exactly. And that comes out in all of these crazy made-for-TV movies in the 80s. Um, And a lot of narratives about babysitters getting with for instance um the fathers and the implications for that
1: yeah yeah of course and the fact that also let's just mention babysitters as imagined in like the american cultural consciousness are always white and blonde yes and girls
0: oh yeah you know yeah yeah it's
1: that that strange like the fantasy then also the neuter, the neutering of the sexual fantasy i mean i was very irresponsible as a teenage girl if you yeah, I can't believe I was after. allowed to be a babysitter. <laughs> I did it a couple of times. I was very bad at it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was a pretty good babysitter. I bet you were. No, it yeah. didn't take off for me. I fed them fish fingers that were still a bit frozen in the middle, and I, my mind was elsewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so why don't we talk
1: about our favorite nanny books? Yeah, definitely. Do you want me to go first? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, mine is is The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Um, which was first published in 1898 and uh, I read when I was a teenager and it scared the bejesus out of me and I I was brought up by nannies you know and my parents but we had a I had a living nanny looking after me as a kid and um, my parents both worked and so when I read this book it touched on some really really deep unconscious understandings of that dynamic from the experience of the child who you know you're handed over to a random lady who you know you become incredibly close to and those bonds tend to be really 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 potent and powerful but the fear and the possible anxiety of that relationship being complex is different when experienced as the child than as the mother I'm sure um Anyway, so this really touched a nerve. Um, It's about a young governess who goes to work for a wealthy bachelor who needs someone to look after his wards, who is niece Flora, who's eight, and nephew Miles, who's 10, who are very adorable and very charming in a way that should immediately make you feel a bit creeped out and nervous. Um, It's mostly set at Bly, which is his big country estate, and he spends most of his time in London. He doesn't participate in childcare. He's not interested. So the governess takes the job um and mainly cuz she falls a bit in love with him so again it's raising questions of sexuality in the sphere of this kind of domestic role um anyway she starts to see this mysterious couple around the grounds man and a woman um and they strike her as being in some way supernatural and then she finds out that actually her predecessor miss jessel had a sh- like had a shagging <laughs> had a shagging affair was shagging the valet um and uh I'm not gonna spoil it, so I'm gonna leave it there, but basically, you know, who are these people? Why does she see them? What's going on? Um, it references Jane Eyre, it references Bertha Rochester, it brings up ideas of madness, and feminine uh, kind of sensitivity that is rejected by a masculine world. It uh, kind of brings up ideas of gaslighting, and what which experience is true, Do ghosts exist outside of our minds, even if they don't, they can still change the way that we b- behave. Um, and there's also a really amazing film version of it, which was made in 1992, starring Patsy Kensett, narrated by Marianne Faithfull. And it's really, really trashy and brilliant. Um, and the, the the man is reimagined as a drug adult jet set hippie. Um, and it's yeah, I recommend it very highly if you don't want to read the book.
0: Yeah, because I love Henry James, but I have to say I've always avoided this because I don't really like scary stories as such.
1: Yeah, it's a real or go ghost story. If yeah. you're not into that, then I don't think you, you would necessarily enjoy it. I mean, it you know, it's it's Henry James, so the 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 writing is really exquisite um, and subtle, but it's it's him it's him approaching genre fiction you know in a, in a way it's very much like a gothic ghost story and mm. you can feel that he like clears his throat like <clears> throat> all right let's do this you know <laughs> okay. um well i th- I, th- I think i should still read it watch the movie i think you'll love patsy kensler okay. being a dork it's great it's ri- it's ridiculous there's an amazing scene where there's like some very powerful lightning and she's wearing a nighty in the garden and you know it's good
0: i love nighties i know you do <laughs> <laughs> um so i wanted to recommend a book that we talked about on the show but it was a really long time ago when our show was still first edition and i don't think it's actually available online
1: i think it's allowed babe you can yeah you can
0: say whatever you want but it just this when i was thinking about contemporary nanny narratives and books that explored that odd relationship um when you're working for a family of wealthy people um caring for their children and working in their house and in a time when we've sort of got rid of servants but still have servants exploring that strange dynamic. Um, I thought of this book, which is The Last Kings of Sark by Rosa Rankin-G. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think we had her on a show we themed about islands. So again, straying into different territory here. Um, But this is a really, it's a really lovely novel about first love. Um, I think first and foremost, it's about this woman who, I think she's about to go to university and she is hired by this wealthy family who live on the channel island of Sark where there are no cars and barely anyone lives there um, to tutor their son for the summer. The son is very resistant. He doesn't want to tutor. And so she's left with sort of nothing to do working for this family. Um, And becomes friends with the staff of the house who are all arranged in this really odd hierarchy because she is educated and educating the son. She is above this woman, Sophie, who is the Polish cook who's been hired for the family, but they quickly fall in love. Um, they become friends and then fall in love and actually have a sort of weird love triangle with the son as well. So it's a coming of age story for all of them. Um, and also an exploration of what it, what it means to be a nanny and, and, care for children in this day and age
1: yeah it's a great book it's a really great book I'm glad you reminded me of it it's very subtle and lovely yeah it is and actually it's funny I'd forgotten that there is that I'd kind of forgotten that there is that au pair narrative happening in it because I the thing that that I was left with after reading it was the love story more than anything but of course you're right
0: yeah I mean it's not like a withering critique of (laughs) (laughs) of social class and nannying but it's definitely a strain Um, And I like the fact that it is um, a love story between two women is another way that it subverts expectations about how love should be conducted and how business should be conducted in this very rigid sort of setting of extreme wealth.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: This is Literary Friction, I am Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia and Layla to give some book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start?
1: With pleasure. Um, so I, I was sick a lot over Christmas, it was a real pain in the ass, but my friend Steve sent me a literary cure, and it was this phenomenal book called Hatred of Capitalism, a semiotext reader, um, which was edited by Chris Krause, who we had on the show mm. a while ago, we, we often talk about her, and Sylvain Lotringer, who was her husband at the time. Um, and it was balm for my fucking soul when I was stuck in bed feeling very miserable about the world. Um, it was compiled in 2001 and it brings together basically the highlights of the most beloved works published by the press over the years, over 30 years. It was founded in 1974. Um, and his Lotringer's main aim in founding the press was to bring together French critical theory with contemporary American art and punk underground writing. Um, so you have this amazing mishmash of Baudrillard and Lyotard and Foucault alongside Michelle T, Chris Krause, William Burroughs. So the energy in the pages is just absolutely electric and very, very exciting. Um, And I finished it kind of thinking, the world is all right. <laughs> like there's still really exciting work happening. You know, it's it's a very electric electric experience. And basically, I, I realized when I finished it, it was like I feel like I've just been to the best kind of dinner party where we've had like a really great balance of philosophers and activists and you know mad poets and all the rest.
0: So yeah, I recommend it really highly. And I should also say thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve, who is a mutual friend of ours. Yeah. Great, Steve. It, that also sounds like the most Octavia book ever. Also the know. most Steve, the most Steve book yeah, ever. The most Steve book ever. <laughs> I don't know if I would have enjoyed it as much as you did. No, maybe not. But I mean, it still sounds great. Layla, <laughs> um, do you mind telling us about a book that you would yeah, recommend? And, uh,
2: you know, I'm working on a new novel, and for my work, I reread Disgrace by Kudzi, the South mm. African uh, uh, novelist, and it's absolutely extraordinary the style is extraordinary very clear very very simple and i love the character he's um, a professor he's uh, like 55 years old he's divorced twice and he has an affair with a very young uh, woman a student of him so he's um, on a trial for harassment um, and he decides to go on uh, to retire and to go live with his uh with his girl on in the country And I love the character because he's not sympathetic at all. He's very, there's a lot of ambiguity. You don't like him, but at the same time, you want to know what is going to happen to him. And it's um, really an extraordinary book about mixed feelings and the mixed feelings you can feel as a reader for the character, for the main character of a a book. So I will, uh, I would recommend this book.
0: Yeah, I read that a long time ago, but I loved it. And I just remember those scenes when they're um, euthanizing the dogs. Yeah, that, wow. That Euthanized. image will just stay with it's me forever. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, I completely and agree. And the
2: style is wonderful.
0: Yeah. Um, and I'm not, I guess reading your book, I'm not totally surprised that you <laughs> yeah. loved it as well. Um, so um, I'm going to be cheat a little bit and recommend very quickly three books that I read just massive cheat yeah Yeah, show (laughs) off actually but I didn't want (laughs) to prize anyone above the other and I did some reading over Christmas it's okay we'll let you do it and also the first one is one that I think you recommended on the show already so I didn't want to go on too long about it but it is um, Your Silence Will Not Protect You which is a collection of essays and writing and poems um, and speeches by Audre Lorde who is this Mm. amazing African American um, feminist and thinker. Uh, She unfortunately is no longer alive but this is the first sort of essential collection of her work published in the UK. It's published by a small um, new feminist publisher called Silver Press who are doing really rad stuff and just was a really great way for me to think about my own feminism, my complicity in white feminism, my complicity in the patriarchy, and really examine my own thoughts and feelings and and just be you know, led along by this thinker who just was way ahead of the game in terms of what she was saying and what she was thinking. Um, sort of in a similar vein, um, I read Women in Power by Mary Beard. Mary Beard, of course, is the... Um, Classicist uh, professor at Cambridge, uh, and this is uh, two lectures that she did about women in power. Sort of taking her own speciality, which is which is Rome, um, ancient Rome, and thinking about the ways that women have been silenced throughout history, but also the way that women can actually grab power and change the system. Um, because she says it's not enough for women to be in power; it's it, it has to be a paradigm shift. Um, again, sort of, it was a nice thing to read after Audre Lorde thinking again about feminism and then in a completely different, um, area, which again, you also recommended on the show is, um, Philip Pullman's new book in his, um, it's, he said it's an equal to the, his dark materials trilogy, um, called La Belle Sauvage. It's just it's just really nice to be back in the world of Lyra and Oxford. And I, I recently moved to Oxford and being able to read that book and then go to the places he described is just a total joy. So if you want to be swept away literally in the book and figuratively in literature, then I would really recommend La Belle Sauvage. You
1: nailed that, babe. Great
0: Thanks. collection. <laughs> well done. So thank you for indulging me both. <laughs> and thank you again, Layla.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: So that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Leila Slimani, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music.
1: Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please say hi. We love to hear from you. And please do rate us if you like us. It really helps us.
0: Yes. And we say that every month, but we mean it every month. We do. But if you don't want to rate us, that's fine too. Don't give them the option, to. No Carrie. pressure. <laughs> We're free and easy here at Literary Friction. <laughs> we'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.